0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors LLC.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com/businessgoldcard.
0: And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, and unfortunately, Tracy Alloway is out this week. But the good news is we have uh, one of our favorite re- recurring guests on the podcast today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Srinivas Vedantai. he's the director of research at the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. Uh, great voice and uh, great insights on markets and economics. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the Fed, monetary policy, bubbles, economic volatility and things like that. There's a lot of um there's a lot of belief out there that the Fed contributes to instability, bubbles, but a lot of the thinking is kind of muddled, uh, sort of overly simplistic ideas about oh low rates just lead to surge in speculation. Uh, Srinivas has some more uh, insightful complex ideas about the nature of central banking over the last several decades and how it's contributed to less than ideal outcomes in the economy. And uh, we're going to talk to him now. So Shree, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And good to be back.
0: (laughs) You know what's interesting? uh, Before we get into, you wrote this paper uh, recently on uh, inflation targeting. But before we get into that, it's funny. I was looking at a chart recently of just inflation. You can measure it, obviously, several different ways and strip out of things. Over the last 15 years and probably further if you strip out oil prices, right, it's almost impossible to find any meaningful up or down trend at all. Even the the, the economic collapse, the boom, the whatever—it's like there's it. it it kind of just stays the same.
2: It's dead flat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is right. And people I mean,
0: overread. Like, this always strikes me. They get really excited, like, oh, the three-month annualized rate of change in core CPI, excluding healthcare services, is at its fastest level in three years. And they get really excited. Right. But then you zoom out. It's like inflation hasn't changed dynamics in years.
2: Yeah. And we have got used to that, you know, that that stability, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that even a small tick up in the three months gets people yeah. excited, you know?
0: How much of the can be attributed to Fed policy in your view? The fact that inflation trends are so stable.
2: I mean, what happens when inflation trends are stable? How much can it be attributed to Fed? I think certainly Fed has contributed to it. I mean, if you look at the Fed policy in the last 20, 30 years, uh, what it has done is implicitly, they are not trying to... I mean, a lot of people attribute a lot of motives to Fed. I just want to be careful. They're not trying to do anything they are trying to do right. within their mandate. Uh, now, it may be that the framework is wrong, which right. is what I believe. Um, but what they have tried to do is they take two things very seriously, low and stable. The stable part of it is is a lot more problematic than just the low part, in my right. opinion. It's If you have low with a little bit of volatility around it, that would be okay, probably okay. Uh, maybe you need to cheat it up a little bit. But but you keep the stability that you're pointing out is the is the, is is partly the fed's doing yeah
0: so let's start you wrote this paper and you took aim at a particular particular approach to monetary policy or framework i guess maybe one would call it called uh you call it inflation targeting what is inflation targeting when did it start when did the fed adopt this current framework in your view
2: the fed actually officially started inflation targeting only in 2012 um but implicitly if you look back, they probably have been doing it since the early '90s or maybe mid '90s. At least hmm. they have been doing that, and even before that, you know, if you look at the uh, '70s when people really got, of course, yeah. uh, were r- upset about inflation. So the original Humphrey Hawkins Act actually called for low and stable inflation, and inflation to be like zero percent, or you know, eventually yeah. they said that to zero is not possible. Two percent over a long period of time. Uh, so it's been there. Implicitly we have been doing inflation targeting in one form or the other, at least since the mid nineties.
0: What well what is it? What is so it's just this idea that it's not enough to just have low inflation, but that they should really worry about any sort of volatility in that? Is that the right. and what is their what's the main approach to achieving that goal?
2: So the main approach to achieving this goal, and this is the tricky part, because the mechanism is never really clarified. You know, when you ask monetarists or when you ask economists, they would tell you, oh, it's all through expectations. But these expectations channels, I mean, if you really look at inflation expectations, they have really not changed much or they they don't seem to have any relation to reality sometimes. So, you know, I don't know how that expectation channel works except in textbooks.
0: (laughs) But the basic idea between the expectations channel is through some magic i know it's not they would never say magic that we all expect inflation to be low and maybe around 2% and if everyone sort of accepts that and if we all accept that the fed will do whatever it takes to keep it there right. then that has the effect of actually keeping it there right and probably the main way sort of mechanically that the fed keeps it there is by being very vigilant raising rates at any sort of hint that inflation might be picking up to reinforce this notion among consumers, among businesses, that they will do what it takes. That is
2: right. And and that is that is that is clear. Their signaling aspect of it, apart from raising rates, all the talk that goes along with it is one aspect of it. To be sure, you know, I mean, of course, people to some extent, you know, if there is a set expectations that, you know, Prices go up by two percent, so people yeah. get wage wage hikes about two percent. People are happy, and you know that's what gets set in the right. pricing mechanism, but it doesn't work through the expectations way way that right. a lot of people think it works.
0: But that is that's how they sort of explain it, or that right. is in theory. Now you say inflation targeting officially only has existed since twenty twelve, de facto it's existed since the mid nineties. Okay so then what was the pre the earlier approach how does that substantively differ from what the fed did in the 60s or the 70s or
2: right 80? in the 60s and 70s they were not particularly i mean 70s was it's a little bit different but in the 50s and 60s when they would see the economy heating up and inflation starting to pick up, they would just slam the brakes, but they didn't particularly have a specific target in mind. Hmm. They were not trying to target inflation. But it was also much more, um, from the industrial side, Uh, much more, you know, like a German-type economy. There were large unions, and there would be large union-type bargaining. So the price mechanism was a little bit different, wage and price mechanism. We don't have that kind of a thing. So, you know, I mean, prices were a lot more closely aligned with wages and productivity.
0: Okay, so they they still fought inflation. They still wanted low inflation. And then did you say the Humphrey-Hawkins mandate required them to have that? But it wasn't like we have this number, it's about 2%, and we're going to do what it takes. We just don't want inflation to go up. And if it looks like it's going up or starting to go up, we're going to fight it.
2: That is correct. I think the the difference in, in the post-1980 era is – especially post-1990, let's say, um, let's put that as a cutoff, is the mandate on stable inflation and what they think contributes to the inflationary pressures. You know, see, in the past, they used to have some kind of, even if you try to recast it into a model and try to uh, backfit the data, they did some Taylor rule kind of a thing all through up to 1980. They have been doing that ever since as well, but they also have an extra emphasis on not just the output gap, but on how fast you're reaching the output gap. I mean, so you let's say you have a huge output gap. Let's say, not, yeah. for for simplicity's sake, Nairu is 5% and unemployment is 10%. The gap okay. is huge, right. right? And that Nairu may itself overstate an, an unemployment. I mean, the, the natural rate. Yeah. But that's a huge gap. But let's say you are accelerating. Should the Fed be worried? Right. It should, should the economy is accelerating, should the Fed be worried because the gap is so big? But they seem to. Data. I mean, the empirical work shows that they seem to be really concerned. If you're accelerating very fast, even if the gap is huge. Yeah.
0: So even if there's, it's clear that all right, everyone thinks that ten percent is a very long way from full employment, like what we saw uh, obviously in the immediate during the financial yeah. crisis. There's almost no level. If if we if we suddenly got hot growth. Right. It doesn't matter how big that gap is, that makes Fed officials nervous at this point.
2: That is right. And and you you saw that early in the in the expansion, right? They were not people keep saying now in hindsight, oh the Fed should have been more accommodative, they should have said this, said that. But you know, like for instance, twenty thirteen, that's six years ago when they did the paper tantrum thing. I mean, you know, when things heat up a little bit, they react to the heating up. And I think And that's kinda new. That in is of, that is new. new. So you yes. did
0: not see that in the 60s and 70s. Absolutely if not. If there was a big output gap, if there was clear that there was a lot of people who were left to come back in the workforce, they would be they would welcome yes. fast growth because that would get them to the yes. goals faster. Yes. Absolutely. So was that Greenspan who sort of beat was the first? I mean, in a way, I mean, sometimes it's interesting because Greenspan's legacy I think over the years is I think people deteriorated a little bit. <laughs> like, you could make the, you know, sometimes I think like he made some interesting choices and was certainly seemed to tolerate the boom a little bit in exactly. a way that maybe modern central bankers would be more uncomfortable with. Yeah, the
2: longer you stay, the greater the chance that your image gets tarnished because right. something yeah, will go true. wrong, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, I mean, he did in the 1990s to, yeah. to some extent, for sure. He let the boom boom run, yeah. uh, and, and that is right. I mean, see, there are two aspects to it. Letting the boom run is... Is, is not necessarily bad, but the problem with letting the boom run in the backdrop of an inflation targeting right. framework where the Fed says it's going to keep inflation control leads to build up and leverage right. and the financial excesses. That's the
0: issue. Right. And so this gets to kind of one of your key points, but also sort of what seems like the unspoken or increasingly vocalized problem with all of this, which is that so far we've just been talking about this sort of... Um, push-pull relationship between uh, unemployment and inflation. But then there's this added dimension of financial leverage and speculation. So we had a very good economy throughout much of the 90s. But when things are good for a long time, people get reckless with speculation, then we have a bubble. Right. That's right. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. In the beginning, as I mentioned, I was like, you know, it's kind of amazing. Like Inflation doesn't do anything. So on one level, the economy has been incredibly stable, and that's in prices. But this pursuit of stability on the inflation front, in your view, creates instability elsewhere.
2: Right. Because when you have such stable inflation... The Fed is making two kinds of uh, promises effectively, right? Yeah. When you're saying that inflation is going to be stable. Look, if you are a investor in credit, it's telling you that you don't need to worry about inflation eroding your, uh, your real returns. The right? value of or, the repayment stream. Uh, re- 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 yeah. And you also, Dean, don't need to worry about deflation, which would be really bad because the defaults would pick up if you're right. a credit investor. So They're making you a very narrow corridor promise. Yeah. And if you're... That what does it encourage you? It encourages you so that Fed is going to do whatever it takes to do that, right? To hit that mandate. Yeah. So you should go ahead and and make a loan. Uh, make loans. And that's why you see, if you look at this era, that's when you've had these junk bonds. There was no such thing called junk bond before. There used to be investment grade bonds that would become junk, but there was no market called junk bonds. Huh. The whole junk bond market has been explosive in this era.
0: I think this is just an incredibly important point, And I think one that we should just slow down for a second for people to understand this idea that if I make a loan to you, there's two ways I can lose, right? right? So if inflation shoots up, And, you know, you have to pay me back $100 every month and inflation surges, the value of that $100 a month is less. So that was an unfortunate choice by me. On the other hand, if there's a recession, you might lose your job and not be able to pay me back at all. Right. And so what you're describing with this inflation targeting and by keeping it very stable. Right. And you say they're essentially making two bets is the Fed is taking both sort of normal risks for lenders off the table. Right. And that's just fantastic for lenders.
2: That is fantastic for lenders. But what it does in a secular sense is builds up leverage in the system, which is to be very different from, which I want to distinguish this. You know, there is a lot of moral play in, in economic debates, policy debates, that oh, we need to purge the excesses from yeah. building up, you know, like right. you know Andrew Mellon saying that, stuff. Yeah. and that's doing that kind of thing is incredibly painful for the most disadvantaged people in right. society. So I just want to be careful. It's not that the Fed should be hiking rates, you know, purposely right. when things are really bad. That's not what they should be doing. I think it is the mandate per se that creates. So the the issue is when inflation is low. And so let's say the three-month moving average just went above 2%. But yeah. we are like 5% away from anywhere near closing the slack. Yeah. It's early in the cycle where the Fed does this Yeah, it is slamming down. Mm. That really is the problem, which also has been shown in a recent paper.
0: One thing I I mentioned in the beginning is that there all, everyone criticizes the Fed. There's all different kinds of uh, criticisms, and there is this view that uh, you know, the Fed prints a bunch of money, then people go out and make speculative right. um, speculative investments. And you're describing a very different mechanism than what I think is sort of the typical, I don't know, the sort of gold bug kind of Austrian right. crankish, you know. View. No, I, I
2: think there is a. But I think it's kind we of mainstream. Yeah, a lot of I,
0: people have I, this. Like that is the mechanism. They would agree. They're like, yeah, the Fed is causing bubbles. It's because they print all this money and they keep interest rates really low, and then people rush to buy speculative assets. And you're what you're saying, kind of, is that. There is a connection between Fed policy and speculation and too much leverage. It's just different than a common mechanism that's previously
2: Right, described. And I don't criticize the Fed for doing what their mandate says, which right. is try to pursue full employment. You know that if you're slamming the brakes, I mean, so, so slam the brake in 2008 and we did that. What yeah. happened? Right. I mean, you, you are the human cost of doing these kind of things is incredible, which somehow people seem to right. do, I mean, paper over when they right. talk about. I think the issue. My issue is, we if we want to address these issues of cleaning up everything yeah. and have a stable economy and stable growth, we need to think, rethink policy. But not there's no point in criticizing the Fed because they've been given the mandate right. of trying to manage the global macro economy, and these are the tools that they have. What are they supposed to do with it?
0: So what? Are, what should they do? I mean, so is the is the issue that the Fed? in any mandate doesn't have the tools to do this and that we need more more aggressive fiscal policy in some way and that essentially, no matter what happens, if we lean entirely on monetary policy for macroeconomic stabilization, that will inevitably lead to these kind of Risky debt buildups.
2: Yes, you need fiscal policy because fiscal policy, apart from being stabilizing, you know, in a in a macro sense, the flow financial flows, you know, profits and everything. It also, in a balance sheet sense, what you're doing with fiscal policy, you're adding more safe assets to balance sheets. Therefore, you're making them more resilient. Right. Right. I mean, you're adding more treasury bonds to portfolios. You're making it more safe.
0: You know what's weird to me is. Going back to the mechanism via which inflation targeting uh, leads to buildups is I think that, you know, the Fed, as you put it, has created nirvana for lenders. So if you're a banker, if you're a lender, if you have capital, this is the absolute sweet spot. Shouldn't this be like what all the conspiracy theorists adopt? Because this actually kind of seems like, uh, you know, the real tinfoil hat types who think the Fed is like secretly in cahoots with the elites and all that, shouldn't they adopt the view that what the Fed is doing is setting up an economic uh, Goldilocks that's just absolutely beautiful? If you're the if you're the entities that have money and the ability to lend,
2: that is that is actually true in some sense. I mean, they're not doing it. They, they're I mean, there is no grand conspiracy. theory. Right. it's, not, a, yeah, it's yeah. not an
0: intentional. Oh, yeah. We're going to do this to enrich creditors, right? But de facto, they've created a great scenario if you're a lender.
2: That is correct. That's absolutely true. And that's why it has been associated with the rise of finance, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the rise of the financial sector in the last 30 years, you know, overall in gross value added, in profits and in everything, you know, it's clearly been associated with this era. I don't want to pin it all on the Fed policy. There sure. are lots of complicated issues going on. But certainly, there is contribution from Fed policy.
0: Why did... Uh, so, yeah, There's actually a real diversion, but you mentioned inflation. They were like slam the brakes in 2008. Uh, I think in Europe, they got really unnerved by oil in 2011. Why did, like, in like, the modern era, did central bankers still get so freaked out by oil prices?
2: Because 1970s, and if you look at most of them, yeah. of the people who were in uh, central banks, these are people whose formative years were in the 70s. Right, right. All of them, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why inflation, when, when people get, I mean, David Graeber just wrote something and all economists got really upset about yeah. it, right? But they don't do some soul searching. Why has inflation gotten so much preponderance in the economic literature? Inflation, yeah. inflation, 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 targeting inflation, that cost of inflation. Yeah. And actually, if you look at the data, this is very much from the mainstream. There's very major paper written by uh, Nakamura, who used to be at Columbia, but she's now at um, Berkeley, I think. Fantastic paper. She just did amazing work with this. She and her hmm. co-authors. Elusive costs of inflation. So she went back and looked at the 1970s data. She did all this microfiche work to get that, that yeah. data. And and she found that the costs of inflation that people talk about in the textbook or in the models, New Keynesian models, were simply not there in the 70s. Whatever the costs that people talk about.
0: It, this is in terms of real costs to yes. the economy. Yeah. In terms of... Well, what is the theoretical idea behind the idea that inflation is bad? So, the
2: inflation, what it, what it, what they're saying is, it distorts relative prices. Okay. If there is high inflation and therefore high variability in inflation, high volatility in right. inflation, it creates the uh, distortion in the relative prices, and thereby it creates uh, wrong signals for allocation of, right. of capital, allocation of output, allocation of resources. That's...
0: So, so the essential belief that inflation should be both low and stable is this idea that if we just like get prices fairly predictable and stable, then all the other decisions that are actually important for the economy, companies making investments and so forth, they do a better job at that. That is And good. the economy and then theoretically all these other th- things are like downstream from inflation. They do a better job of that. And so we've been talking about the speculative excess that emerged due to inflation targeting. But go on, What is the, what are the costs in terms of other aspects of the real economy? Because again, if you look over the last 15 years, they've obviously achieved inflation is very low and stable. But I mean, for most of that time, employment has been far away from anything that anyone would call full employment. So they're also failing on that front.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the standard New Keynesian model, this is how absurd it is, and people. This is one. The economists are going to give me a lot of blowback on it. How absurd it is! The cost of having a little bit volatile inflation that distorts relative prices, apparently, okay, which the data doesn't show that at all, is more than cost of recessions. Much more than the cost of recessions. In their view. In their view.
0: In their view, recessions are preferable to. So having inflation be a
2: little more volatile. Right. That is how it is. But in the last 30 years, since 79, not 30 years, 40 years now, Yeah, unemployment rate has been above Nairu. I don't believe in Nairu, but let's take Nairobi that as a... Nairu
0: is the non... What's it for those...
2: Non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Let's and so we don't even.
0: You, I know you don't even believe that this number actually exists, but the premise of that is that, of this idea that Nairu exists, is that there is a level of unemployment below which... Suddenly, inflation really takes inflation off. But the vast on. majority of time, we've been above that. We
2: have been more than two thirds of the time since in the last forty years. Seventy percent of the time, we have been above Nairo. So seventy percent of the time, we are above. We are running the economy on slack. Just imagine.
0: So that, why and what? Why doesn't this get more attention in the academic literature? The fact that. I don't know I mean why no, I, like, why I, don't like, know. I see that, that is all the time
2: thing that is what I'm trying to say because
0: so. I tweeted the other day this the chart of like inflation being stable and someone's like oh so're you're, what you're saying is the Fed is doing its job right and well no because they have two mandates so they're like they're one of them is doing one mandate the low and stable inflation mandate yeah they I guess you could say they're doing their job right but it's clearly they're failing on the second one
2: it's an exorbitant cost of achieving a mandate for yeah. whose benefits are very nebulous.
0: That's what it is. The Fed is a dual mandate of low and stable inflation as well as uh, maximum employment. employment. Do all central bankers more or less think those are not, that the second one, the employment part of the mandate, is the lesser among equals?
2: I do think they do. And in in the other case, they don't even have that mandate. Like ECB doesn't have the mandate.
0: ECB's mandate is only just prices. just prices. So they don't even have the mandate.
2: So, (laughs) well, they don't care
0: about it. So... Let's go back to policies that could ameliorate this. And I think a key thing is, you know, you're not talking about liquidation. You're not saying, oh, yeah, we got to, like, raise rates and squeeze out the bad debts and cause a recession. But this I, what you're saying is that from a much bigger secular standpoint, right. it's not about 2019 stocks are high and that right. makes you nervous. Yeah. It's that... For decades, we've run a regime in both ups and downs Correct. that contribute to a buildup of uh, uh, risky debt. And we had your colleague right. uh, on the uh, podcast, uh, right. David Levy, a few weeks ago. He talked about that uh, risky debt. But this is not a cyclical thing. It's just right. it's a it's a fixture of the economy.
2: That's right. It's a fixture. It's a fixture of the economy. And so, how do we that that contributes to instability, like it leads to the kind of thing that we had in 2008 and then before that in 1990, the banking problems. So how do you deal with that? I think you certainly, fiscal policy has to play a much more active role, number one. Number two, you know, Minsky said this also, that regulation will always... The innovation will always be ahead of regulation, but you do need to yeah. qu- to keep on improving on regulation. So the Fed's approach generally has been, okay, we're going to do monetary policy with interest rates or something like that, yeah. but we're not really going to do much m- regulatory suasion in right. one form or the other. Like in the 1990s, Greenspan resisted doing anything with... Uh, with margin debt, when people are talking about. I don't know whether that's the right approach, but one has to think about a variety of regulatory tools. Like in the, in the in the in the housing bubble when it was going, you could have kept interest rates low, but try to curb right. down on the on the risky lending. Puts more guidances. They right. did come up with the guidance, but it was like in 2006, they yeah. came up with the guidance.
0: Powell, the current Fed chair, seems cognizant of this tension. Uh, he does not seem like he has any appetite to. Slow the economy via interest rates. He doesn't seem particularly concerned about inflation. Right. Um, Maybe less concerned, probably than even some of his uh, predecessors. He does seem concerned. I think it was, um, I think it was Jackson Hole Summer 2018, and he talked about how uh, imbalances don't really show up in inflation, but they show up in financial. Uh, excess. They so they find it. Right. So, do you have some hope that the Fed, in its current direction, is maybe thinking about at least identifying the problem a little bit more, if not necessarily coming up with the tools to curb speculation other than through the rates channel, at least identifying? that the current setup is kind of insufficient for all the con- the real concerns that are out there.
2: I think so. I think uh, if you see the, even the academic literature a lot of work has been is being done on on the macroprudential stuff and on and even you know the Dodd Frank whether the legislation was perfect or not I don't know no legislation is ever perfect but yeah. you know it's a work in progress. But you can see that it certainly has contributed to frictions and, you know, complete easy lending and easy policies. So we don't get the same crazy things happening.
0: Do you think that economists who are doing their work now and then over the coming years um, and maybe entering uh, academia or central banking will carry the scars of mass unemployment with them and put an emphasis more on the employment side 15 years from now, 20 years from now, in the same way that central bankers in the 90s had their formative years, the inflation of the 70s?
2: Probably, but I don't see that much of it. I mean, I I do read quite a bit of the yeah. literature. I don't see that much of it. What I do see a lot is much more of the macroprudential stuff, you know, yeah. or the financial crisis and the financial friction modeling. Right. I think their advisors are still probably people who are still very much focused on inflation. It's <laughs> funny, like
0: I I mean I know what you're saying, and I you know I don't read much academic literature, but I I am surprised at the number of you know smart people that I follow out there who are like still like pretty kind of dead-enders on the sort of new Keynesian models that you described. I mean, to me, as just a sort of lay observer of this who's not steeped in the literature, it looks like they've mostly failed. It looks like, A, they haven't delivered uh, much stability, and B, that the models they have for, say, even anticipating when inflation is going to take off, everyone seems to have embarrassed themselves on this. And yet- by and large, there's a lot of people who don't strike me as having done a particular amount of soul-searching. or
2: You know how long it takes to learn the apparatus, learn the math behind it, learn yeah. the coding behind it, how much investment in human capital it takes to do that? And are you going to throw it away? Think right. about it. If you had put it that way. Some costs. Cost. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know. You know, that's, that's really what it is. I mean,
0: Before we go, so... Uh, you know, the the sort of extreme other end of the sort of New Keynesian idea is the sort of modern monetary theory school, which essentially says the Fed should just set interest rates at zero and they should all just go on vacation and that all of the sort of task of fighting inflation and uh, maintaining uh, macroeconomic stability should be left to fiscal policymakers or policymakers in general, including non-fiscal tools or regulatory tools, price controls, whatever it is right. to uh, fight inflation, maybe other supply side things in terms of busting up, busting up rent seekers and right. cartels. Is that too far? Like, what is the proper role for, in your view, for monetary policy to help curb some of the uh, excesses in the economy? And you know, how far should we go in the other spectrum to where you've said we need more active fiscal policy, but is there, you know, how far actually do we go?
2: Well, you know, I don't go that far. I am yeah. more in the camp of um, Tom Pally who has been a critic of MMT. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a critic, bitter critic of yeah. MMT. I'm, I consider them my, my friends. So, but I am more in the Tom Pally camp that yeah. monetary policy is too important a tool to be left in the, uh, in the garage, in the, in the toolbox, and not to be used. I think it has a role to play. So that's what we need. We need to rethink, and I certainly yeah. don't think we can just keep it at zero and, and right. leave it at that. No,
0: so some role to play still. But it's just this overreliance that's created the dead build. That's
2: right. That is exactly the the, the the issue. I think the the problem in in thinking about any policy is we have to be humble. I mean, and Minsky yeah. said this that you are never going to be capitalism is 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 an innovative animal. It's a complex system which will adapt and yeah. change. As you make more rules, people will innovate and find their way out of the rules. So you cannot think that you're ever going to tame this beast, so that so in 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 a, in a way, uh, but we have to find ways in which we minimize the pain for vast majority of the people. That's the key issue, and then we can you know we we used to have recessions in the in the yeah. 50s and 60s. They were severe recessions, but they didn't have lasting scares. Unlike the last several recessions, each one of them, we take like six years to come out of it in in terms terms of get back to full employment. You know that's the that's the damage we do.
0: Even though this is a you know we're uh, having this conversation about sort of big uh, secular themes right now in the U.S. economy, do you see signs of are other aspects of the private credit market that concern you?
2: Right now, no. I mean, the the corporate credit. Corporate debt has gone up.
0: People talk uh, about corporate credit yeah, all the time.
2: Yeah, corporate, corporate leverage is near record levels. Yeah. Uh, and that's partly because, you know, interest rates are low, and yeah. that enables people to, uh, when earnings yield is high, but you do not have too much uh, capacity for growth, yeah. uh, you don't need to invest. So what you do is you do the buybacks, which people keep criticizing, but what else are they supposed to do with the money? I mean, right. you're giving them money, and they're doing it.
0: Right. Well... Srinivas, uh, great to have you on. always love uh, talking to you, and I appreciate you appearing again on uh, Adlon. Thank you so much, dude. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Uh, Shree is always one of my favorite uh, people to talk to, and I think this idea that uh, you know that the fed has created a sort of nirvana for creditors is such an important concept because there's a lot of confusion about the re- the relationship between monetary policy and asset bubbles and so forth and i find this framework to be uh, this this explanation to be uh, very compelling, and I hope you did uh, too. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And even though she wasn't here, you should follow Tracy on Twitter. She's at Tracy Alloway. And definitely follow Srinivas on Twitter. He's at T3, one of my favorite uh, followers, just great all around. Be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter. Set the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.